This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. Matt Amick has been making his way through the agriculture community professionally since 2010, has worked for the Corn Growers Association and is currently with the Missouri Soybean Association. He's a farm kid from Missouri who hasn't strayed too far from his roots. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Appreciate you having me. So where did the love of agriculture begin for you? Well, I'll be honest. Uh, you know, I grew up on a farm and uh, it was a cattle farm in, in Southern Cole County. So I, I, I actually grew up in Jeff City in the Brazito, Missouri area. If you're familiar with Brazito, if you've gone to the Lake of the Ozarks from Jeff City on Highway 54, you've been through Brazito. You know, when I was growing up, it was kind of like uh, it was it was there, but it wasn't on the front of my mind. Uh, sports, school as well. But uh, as I was going through college and after college, I got directed towards the agricultural industry. And that's really where it started. I've been working for nonprofits that have supported uh, U.S. and Missouri farmers my whole career. So I, I love this this role of supporting farmers. And that's really where my, my love for the agriculture industry started after college. What was it like growing up on a cattle farm as a young man? I took it for granted. Definitely. You know, it was chores, but we had a great childhood, you know, uh, in the summer times growing up, picking blackberries, uh, fishing on the farm ponds, helping with hay, working the cattle. I mean, it was it was a, it was a great childhood, but I definitely took it for granted. It wasn't my top priority. Uh, Were you up before the sunrise feeding cattle? <laughs> I was not. Walking was to not. school uphill both ways? I was not. You know, my, my dad and my parents... Um, really put a focus on school and extracurricular activities like sports and things like and, and anything else related to school. So I would say from a farm perspective, it was kind of a, an afterthought, to be honest with you. But, you know, it was a great childhood. And I I helped my dad when I can. He's still a farmer. Um, he has a cow-calf operation still. And I'd love to get back and, and help him out more when I can. But with a family and, and job, it it does take up a lot of time. So early on, it sounds like your parents may have pushed you in a different direction than taking over the family cattle farm. I think so. I think so. And, you know, in retrospect, I wish that would be a little bit different where, you know, maybe we had the opportunity or my parents would have pushed me more to, you know, take over the farm. And that's the way a lot of farms are set up. You know, from an early age, you've got people that are you know, destined, that's their destiny and they love it. You know, you've got fourth, fifth, sixth generation farm families, which is a great story to tell. And then there's others, you know, you hear stories about farmers that they've encouraged their children to go outside of the farm, get a career, maybe come back to the farm if the opportunity presents itself. But oftentimes it's, hey, let's build a career outside the, the, the farm community. You can still have that farm in the background. You can work in ag retail or whatever that might be. And in my case, it was, uh, kind of go outside of the farm. It's interesting because my case was similar, not in agriculture, but in construction. My family owned a, a floor covering company in Northwest Indiana called Lakeshore Floors. My grandfather owned it before my father and his brother owned it. And even to go back one step further, my great grandfather founded it. So with my father and uncle being third generation owners, I really thought myself and my cousin would be fourth generation owners. And my dad said, you can't work here if you don't have a college degree. That really threw me off track as I was mm -hmm. preparing a plan for my future. I, I never really thought there was anything outside of the construction field for me. I went to Purdue, uh, the world opened up and, and here I am in Jefferson City, Missouri, 
so far away from floor covering. It, it's hard to believe it, yeah, it happened the, in the same life. Living your dreams. But I, I also struggle with it in the sense that, you know, you can't figure out exactly how it would have been, but there would have been aspects to that life that would have been great being in my hometown around family and developing that business to the next level would have been uh, very rewarding, but it would have also kept me from doing the amazing things I've been able to do. So I guess as we get older, we realize we can't have it all, but in your case, are you happy with the path that you've taken? Would you change it? Would you go back and, and focus on being a cattle farmer or do you feel your parents did you justice by making you explore the world outside of that? I think it, having this experience outside the world of, of agriculture has been helpful. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a time working in policy. I actually thought I was going to get into policy, working on campaigns, and maybe being a legislative staff person for Congress or here at the state level. And um, I'm glad I had that experience. I think it helps. And, and with my job today, I get to have a lot of outside experiences. Um, I do wish I would have had and I still have that ability to come back to the farm. So that's, I, I wish I would have been more involved, you know, growing up and, and my dad would have definitely, or my parents would have definitely put me in that position to take over at some point. But I think I've got the best of both worlds now. I've got a family I can help out on the farm. Plus I've got this career outside of the farm that's help helps me be involved with the farmers, but also have a lot of these different experiences, which I can take back to my organization, take back to my, my, my life experience. Let's talk about your job today. You're the director of market development at Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council and Missouri Soybean Association. That's right. You and fit, also at executive you, director of the Biodiesel Coalition of Missouri. You fit all that on one business card? Exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's two-sided. Yeah. So what do you do in that role? So with, with Missouri Soybean, um, just a little bit about our organization, Missouri Soybean Association, we work on state and federal policy and regulatory issues related to soybean farmers. It could be something reactive, like a regulation that might be inhibiting their um, way of doing business, or it could be something proactive, like advocating for the farm bill or you know passing proactive biodiesel legislation like we did last year at the state level. Um, on the merchandising council side, we're funded by something called the soybean checkoff. And a lot of com- commodities are funded through checkoff. These are farmers that vote these programs in, they pay into it themselves. And in turn, these organizations like ourselves will take that money and reinvest it in market development, uh, communications programs, education, research. I fit that bucket of market development. So my role at Missouri Soybean is to build demand for soybeans. Could be domestic livestock usage, could be international exports of whole soybeans or soy-based products like, you know, exporting a a soy-fed pig or cow or whatever that might be, Um, food use, and then biodiesel. And we also have a program where we work on industrial uses for soybeans as well. So that's my role with Missouri Soybean and on the the Biodiesel Coalition. We're dedicated to improving the marketplace for biodiesel in the state of Missouri. It's it's all things biodiesel, trying to build demand for biodiesel and, and education around and promotion around the biodiesel industry. The average consumer, average citizen drives past a field and they see soybeans. They probably think we're going to eat most of those soybeans. It's really not the case anymore. Talk about some of those different avenues that you just mentioned where soybeans are used. What are some products that soybeans are going into? 
Yeah. So once it comes off the farm, half of our soybeans stay here domestically. The other half in Missouri are either exported out of the state or to other countries. So we've got this healthy river system, the Missouri River, Mississippi River. We've got rail markets to the, the south. We can take soybeans to the to the west on rail as well and, and export them. So they either end up in an export market or they get sent to a soybean processing facility. We refer to those as crush plants. There are four crush plants in the state. They take those soybeans, they crush the soybeans, and in that process, 80% of the soybean is soybean meal, which is fed to livestock and then can also be put into our food. And then 20% is soybean oil, which can go into food, biodiesel, and industrial products. On the meal side, that's going to feed primarily in in our state, hogs and, and poultry, a little bit of beef but mostly hogs and poultry in our state and across the, the country. Um, there's a small market for food. I think on the meal side, about 3% of the soybean meal or flour ends up in food products. And then on the oil side, about, I think, 40 to 50% is used for food, about 40% for biodiesel or renewable diesel, and then about 7% for industrial products. So when I, when I refer to industrial products, it could be, Anything from a soy-based tire, which Goodyear has on the market. They've got several lines of soy-based tires. Could be a soy-based sketcher shoe. I'm wearing, well, actually, I'm not wearing some right now, but I've got two pairs. And it could be, um, there's, there's products that can go into asphalt, concrete. Basically, what we're doing is we're replacing the petroleum oil with soybean oil in those products. Each time I go out to a sushi restaurant, I always feel like the money in soybeans has to be in the edamame business. Because it's like a, a small bowl of soybeans. They call it something else and charge me $10 for it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, if I ever get into soybeans, I'm going straight edamame. Yeah, it's a popular appetizer. And particularly in the Asian markets, that's where we see a lot of our food, you know, a lot of food products, food promotions. Here in the U.S., you know, we don't eat as much plant protein. The markets was growing at a certain point and kind of has stalled a little bit. Um, as we see inflation and COVID. But, you know, most of our soybeans are going through the, the belly of an animal. That's where we, we have the income to afford animal protein. So that's what we eat. But unfortunately, demand for animal protein, it's not going as quickly. It's, it's not rising as quickly as internationally. Internationally, the demand for animal protein in the middle class is growing. Wealth is growing. Incomes are growing. For, for countries like Southeast Asia, South America, they're, they're getting more, more appetite for animal protein. In other places like Sub-Saharan Africa, Southern Asia, they don't have the income for that. So soy protein is a good kind of stepping stone for them to you know, get some protein in their diet. And then eventually, as incomes grow, get some animal protein in their diet. The protein that passes through the pigs on the farms that Raceline's operating then becomes renewable natural gas. So we're taking that soybean protein full circle, using it to power vehicles after it's powered pigs. You're also in renewable energy with biodiesel. Explain what biodiesel is and how it's being used today. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because we talk a lot about value added in, in agriculture, in any industry really, but Raceline is a great example of that partnership with Smithfield and having renewable natural gas in, in the marketplace is great, great partnership. Uh, for biodiesel, we've got five biodiesel plants in the state that produce about 250 million gallons of biodiesel. Biodiesel, basically, they take the soybean oil, they introduce the catalyst and turn it into a soy methyl ester through a process called transesterification. 
I'm not going to go into it because I'm not sure exactly how it works chemically. But you introduce this catalyst and then comes out comes biodiesel. Um, you can use biodiesel as a drop-in replacement in petroleum diesel. Little to no modifications. Any diesel engine, you can put biodiesel, drop it in right into the diesel fuel. Um, there's some applications where they use it in heating oil in the northeast part of the U.S. We're getting more and more interest in rail, shipping, really all these Industries and companies are trying to reduce their carbon footprint and without going, you know, a certain maybe more expensive route, um, which we're going to need all these sources of renewable energy in the future. But biodiesel is really a low cost, low barrier way to get into the low carbon, lower your carbon footprint. There's so many different avenues to the carbon markets. One that we're operating in with renewable natural gas is the low carbon fuel standard in California. We're doing very well in that market because of how little carbon we use in the process of making our RNG. But there are factors related to carbon use that lowers your score. For example, using diesel in a truck to transport gas to an interconnect will reduce our value of gas. How prevalent is biodiesel now in transportation and what does the market look like for it? moving forward because if it's used in transportation replacing regular diesel then it's upping the value of other renewable energy products by keeping that carbon usage low throughout the entire cycle the biodiesel market um, we've got about three billion gallons of capacity in the united states 250 million gallons here in the state of missouri that's only about three to 4%, maybe less of the total diesel market. There's a lot of diesel fuel used across the United States. So we've got a lot of work to do. Um, There's a new fuel called renewable diesel, which is similar to this. The process is similar to petroleum refining. They basically take a soybean oil feedstock or a, any sort of vegetable oil or animal fat, and they can convert that to renewable diesel so if you take the, the renewable diesel and the biodiesel market, we call that the biomass-based diesel. We're looking at three to five billion gallons. Um, it, the, there's more renewable diesel that's coming on the marketplace every day. About five billion gallons of capacity has been announced. So it's a small chunk of the, what the, the grand scheme of things is. But I think if we focus on the Midwest, biodiesel is a really great way to reduce our carbon footprint because we've got... We don't have any refineries in the state of Missouri. We don't have a whole lot of refineries in the Midwest. What we do have is biodiesel plants. We've got ethanol plants. We've got renewable natural gas. We could take the manure off the, you know, we've got these things related to agriculture and that's our bread and butter. And if we use those in the Midwest, we can really make a a big difference. There's technology that um, you can use 100% biodiesel in a truck. And so a lot of great opportunities. If you, if you think of it like from, from a fleet perspective, there's performance benefits, higher lubricity, higher cetane, which helps uh, improve the combustion of the fuel. It, it can be lower, you know, com- cost competitive for fuel suppliers. Some of the things in the marketplace we're doing to reduce the, the cost of the fuel for farmers. It's helping contribute back to the, the bottom line of their farm. And for like someone like a public fleet or, a, you know, a county and municipal fleet, if you're worried about, you know, lowering your carbon footprint, cleaning the air in your community, Biodiesel is, uh, if you use 100% completely, it's 
about a 75 to 85% greenhouse gas emissions reduction. Where would you be able to acquire biodiesel? Can you so, pull up to Love's truck stop <laughs> and, and pump it into your truck? And I wish, <laughs> but you can, you can, you can find a blend at a Love's truck, truck stop. So when you go up and down the road, I know a lot of us don't use diesel fuel. Now there, there are more con, you know passenger vehicles. I've got a Chevy Silverado 1500 diesel pickup. You can find it. It's more and more prevalent, but you can find it at Love's, Casey's, MFA Oils, Pilot, in a, in a blend, in a blend, in yeah. a blend. So you, when you go up to the pump, there's really just one pump. Whereas you know, if you go to a gasoline pump, you've got multiple options. You've got in Missouri, we've got 87, 89, 91. There's an ethanol blend, probably. The so green more, handles the diesel blend. Yeah, yeah, and the greens and this is greens diesel. So you've got kind of one option. So it's tough to tell how much biodiesel is in there or if there is biodiesel in there, there's a, a sticker that the fuel regulators here in the state will ask that retailers put on. But, you know, typically if you go to Love's, it's it's going to be 10% or higher between 10 to 20%. So most of it's being blended into diesel now. Yes. Yes. It's interesting with, with the renewable natural gas that we make being credited for transportation, it becomes compressed natural gas, CNG. And very few people know that there are CNG stations out there that are just like gas stations. You pull up and fill up on compressed natural gas as opposed to gasoline. There's one in Kansas City uh, that I'm aware of, but I don't know of too many around here. If you go to Columbia, though, and you see the city buses, they say powered by CNG. So mass transportation in some of the larger cities, maybe some of the smaller, more progressive cities as well, are now running on compressed natural gas. So you pull the bus up and you inject natural gas into that into that vehicle and it powers it. Are we moving towards uh, a place where you think you'll be able to just pull up and fill your truck up eventually on biodiesel? Yeah. And like, like I said, you can do it now at retail stations for it. Access is getting better and better every day. It, you know, the fuel system, you've got terminals, you've got fuel distributors, you've got retail. So trying to get access and infrastructure in place at all those levels can be difficult, but it's improving every day. For instance, in, in the there's a terminal in Kansas City and in Springfield, Missouri. They're both working on building access to biodiesel that should be available this spring. Um, but I, th- I mean, I think I think it's great for consumers to have that choice to the various fuels. And as you, as you know, I mean, seat compressed natural gas um, having that option at a retail station. There's there's you know EV options as well. You know, so there's a lot of different. Things I think if you're a, if you're a retailer and or if you're a fuel supplier, you got to be thinking about all these different things that are out there. And it's not there's not one silver bullet. You know, we want to try and find low cost fuel here in the state, and we want to try you know have good options. And more importantly, I, I haven't even really mentioned it yet, but probably the most critical point is this is all domestic, homegrown energy with what's going on in the world market. I mean, this is the biggest story we can tell that we're producing you know, this domestic energy here in the state and in the Midwest from, you know, agricultural feedstocks. You You don't turn a a giant ship around overnight. And that's what we're doing with these fuels. I remember 15 years ago, the crazy guy that had the big tank in the back of his pickup and he'd go drain out the fryers (laughs) from the grossest restaurants and running his truck on it. And you're thinking, you know, that guy is such an outlier and so crazy. And here we are talking about multiple different fuel options and where we're headed, but you just nailed it. I mean, these are made right here in Missouri. You're taking waste products and turning them into not only a a profitable commodity, but also 
a key to a healthier environment and more economic stimulus. It's just a win, win, win all the way around. It's happening faster than I think most people understand, but still slower than some of us would like. Yeah. There's still some misconceptions about some of these fuels and there's still some barriers, but you know, one thing to your, your point about the, you know, the guy with the, you know, the fryer and his pen, you know, using used cooking oil. The industry really started here in the state about 30 years ago due to some research done at the University of Missouri using soybean oil. And we're coming up March 18th, uh, depending on when this podcast drops, is National Biodiesel Day. And it celebrates the birth of Rudolph Diesel. And his first diesel engine was built to run on peanut oil. So, these, you know, we've been talking about using vegetable oils in our fuel since the beginning of the, you know, the vehicles invented. And so... I think that's the key point. It started here in the state. And when you now the industry has it's not matured, but it's grown to the point where we have got larger producers and quality is very important. And so a lot of people maybe tried biodiesel 15, 20 years ago and had maybe had some issues when it was in its infancy. But now the quality is probably higher than I would say petroleum because just because of the scrutiny that's been placed on the industry. You know, we we often use the description of look at your cell phone. 15, 20 years ago and how that technology has changed. That's the same thing that's happened in the biodiesel industry with the quality and the the performance of the fuel. So we combat those misconceptions on a daily basis about the industry. I just looked at my cell phone and it's got a uh, plastic OtterBox case on it. Now yeah. I'm wondering if there's some soy in the plastic on that. You know, a, there might be. I've heard. I bet I, there is. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I've heard that there is some sort in the in the film of those of the phones, there's some soybean residue or corn residue, one, some sort of agricultural feedstock that's in those, the films on those phones. But a recent uh, press release came across my desk and it says Missouri soybean farmers prove profitable and maintain as the state's number one industry. It says, according to a recent independent economic study, the soybean industry continues to remain as a top economic engine for the show me state. The results of a 2020 study found that the Missouri soybean industry provides more than $8 billion in economic output to the state. A quote from one Matt Amick says, The study allows us to quantify the impact the soybean industry provides to the state, regional, and county levels. As we visit with policymakers, stakeholders, and consumers, this data is valuable to be able to showcase the incredible role of the soybean industry as an economic driver for Missouri and beyond. According to the research, the Missouri soybean industry contributed $8.093 billion in economic output, $3.106 billion in value added, and $386.3 million in federal, state, and local taxes. Additionally, the industry supports 21,590 jobs and $1.199 billion in labor income. So growing some beans, it's just not 80 acres in a tractor anymore, <laughs> is it? That's true. When people, you know, when people think about Missouri soybeans, what is it that you hope they think about? Well, we always want to, like, like you just mentioned, we always want to quantify the impact of our industry. But I think most importantly, remember the farm families that are producing these crops. They may be larger acreages. They may be larger farmers but they're very, very tech savvy. And in most cases, I'm talking 95, 96% of the time, these are family farmers. This is a, a grandpa 
a dad, a daughter, a son, a cousin that are running these operations. And additionally, you know, they're very conservation focused. They're trying to do things that will reduce the cost of their bottom line for sure. You know, it always comes back to that ultimately, but they can do some of these things and keep, keep conservation in mind, try and protect the soil, the water, the air, and reduce their inputs, reduce their impact on the land. So those are a couple of key things I want people to remember. And then also just related back to the economic engine. Yeah, this is a, it's a big industry. We're contributing a lot and we just want people to, you know, continue to recognize, I think in Missouri, we recognize the impact of agriculture. It's one of our top industries, but we've only got like 1.5 or less than 1.5% of the population that farms. So these are just ways we can connect people back to agriculture. We all eat, we all drive, we all use, you know, cotton shirts or, um, you know, some of these industrial products I've talked about. We use those every day. So farmers impact your lives every day. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of great things that they're doing and a lot of reasons to support the agriculture industry and, and remember the agriculture industry, what they're doing for you every day. When you're inside the conversation with landowners and farmers, how much discussion is there about erosion and, and keeping soil on the land, stopping runoff? And does prairie generally get talked about in those conversations? Are there natural barriers uh, that farmers are starting to look to for support in dealing with those concerns. Yeah, it's 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 very top of the mind in the conversations. We've got a farm in a research farm in Columbia, the Bay Farm Research Facility. If you're ever in Columbia, south of Columbia, off Range Line, stop by, take a look. Especially in growing season, it's a great place to be. A lot of activity. We're doing a lot of conservation research. We've got um, research on cover crops. You know, for the winter time, whenever the when the ground is fallow, put. Put a cover crop out there. Good good for wildlife, good for habitat. Um, we're doing research on trying to create buffer strips, pollinator habitat. We just completed the first run of a kind of a, a pollinator habitat pilot program. We worked with some farmers on that. We've got water quality monitoring programs across the state to measure the runoff coming off farmers' fields and how different conservation practices can impact that. And at our, at our office in Jefferson City, no, noted as the Center for Soy Innovation. It is a nice office. It's a nice place. If you ever, one of those innovative things about our office is outside, we've got a bio basin, we've got native plantings. We're measuring the water coming off our lawn to see how those, how that bio basin, how those buffer strips are catching uh, runoff off the nutrients that are running off the soil. So we have a pretty healthy conservation and agriculture related program. Of course, a lot of it comes back to farmers want to do the right thing. A lot of it has to do with the bottom line and making sure that, you know, it's something that they can be profitable um, or, you know, it doesn't cost them too much money to do that. But there are programs out there. We work with a lot of people across the value chain to help farmers out, educate them and make sure they're doing the right things for the land and and partners like uh, all across the board. I mean, we, we we're, we're willing to work with anybody to make sure that, you know, we're doing the right things for the, the land. We're trying to bring a market-based solution to cover crops, becoming a much larger player in agriculture. Right now, there's way too much land that's left bare throughout the winter, but the economic equation, if you will, hasn't been completed yet to get farmers to the point where cover crops are just a gotta be, a no-brainer. What right now in your mind is, is stopping a farmer from putting in a cover crop? 
part of it, I think, is production time and 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 the way that they can get into the get into the ground in the spring and also harvest. You know, we have a lot of rain. The environment can sometimes be not conducive to to get in at the right time and and get things going. I think that is a little bit of a barrier. A lot of people still are miseducated about you know how that affects yields. And so that's some of the part of the research we're doing. You know, one of the things we have a, a yield contest every year, which promotes, you know, farmers that are really producing high, high quality soybeans or high amounts of soybeans. We added a category on high yields with a cover crop to try and promote the fact that you can get higher than average yield by using cover crops. So I think every day of the research, we're compiling the research, is getting better and better on how these uh, practices impact yields, which ultimately is what farmers get paid for. They get paid on yield. Ultimately, what keeps a soybean farmer up at night? What are the big concerns in in your industry today? The big concerns are cost of inputs. We had a little bit higher prices last year, but we also had high inputs. And so that if you have a, a rough year, like we had drought in some conditions of the state, it really impacts the bottom line. So cost of inputs, um, regulatory burdens that may be placed on them. All we ask is, you know, a, a common sense approach to regulatory, the regulatory environment. Come out to a farm, see how they operate before we make any rash decisions on farmers' freedom to operate. We're willing to partner. Like I said, we're willing to partner with anybody, have have any anybody out on the farm to see what farmers are doing, see the good things farmers are doing to reduce inputs. And it's improved so much over time. So I think the regulatory environment is a tough one. I think also going back to the the family farm conversation is the average age of a farmer is 58 to 60 years old. You've got less and less people farming. I think for a lot of farmers, who's going to take over the next generation. We're working on some legislation right now, which would be beginning farmer legislation to try and encourage retiring farmers to pass down their land if they don't have anybody to take over to a, a younger farmer to try and build that next generation of farmers and farm families. So those are just a few things. There's a lot, you know, we're, we're, we're a worrisome group, but you know, working with farmers all these years, they are some of the most optimistic people that are, they can be, and they're great people to work with. And I just appreciate all, all the opportunities I've had to work for farmers. Well, in an, in an effort to do my part, if you know any soybean farmers in the, the Howard County area that are, are worried about all the deer eating their beans, <laughs> I'd, I'd offer my services up to, to help eliminate a couple of those white-tailed bean eaters yeah. from their field. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, sounds good. I'll, I'll, we'll put that in the next newsletter for sure. I appreciate it. Matt, thanks for sitting down with us today. Hope to have you back in the future. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for listening to the Prairie Profits Podcast with host Brandon Butler.